Hello and welcome everyone to Westside Christian Church. Today, John Wade is bringing the teaching to you. So grab a Bible and join us as we study God's Word together. section or pew, I want you to take about 90 seconds and list what you think are some of the most common attributes of God according to the Bible. What are some of the most common attributes of God according to the Bible? How does he describe himself in his revelation? What is his character? What is his nature? What is his personality? What words are used to describe what he does and what he cares about? So what are the attributes of God? Group up, take 90 seconds, you can write it down, uh, and just uh, be prepared to share those out loud in about 90 seconds, and go. Uh, All right, so what did we find on our list of attributes? What are some things that came to mind? Loving, Loving, merciful, just, Just, very good. Jealous, Jealous. ooh, I like that one. Vengeful, all right. Okay, healing, yeah. Faithful, very good. Eternal, patient, forgiving, yeah. You guys are great at this. Self-sacrificial. Wonderful. The great list. Absolutely wonderful list. And the list goes on and on. I mean, there are so many attributes of God that are talked about in Scripture, that are, are spoken about. And uh, each of them is wonderful in their own way. Even the ones that we don't typically think of as being positives, like jealous. But it is a good thing. All of these things about God that we see displayed in Scripture. But there's one I noticed we didn't mention in this, and it's often neglected in our list of God's attributes. And I think for a good reason, because we don't understand it fully. And that is that God is holy. God is holy. What is holiness? What is holy? Maybe somebody said it and I didn't hear it. So many things up here bombarding me. I couldn't hear all of them. But holiness. We often neglect it, even though holiness is one of the most spoken of attributes of God in the entire Bible. Did you know that? It is one of the most spoken of attributes of God. Not his love, not his justice, not even his righteousness. It's his holiness that is spoken of in great detail. Over and over and over again. The holiness of God is made clear to us as being an important attribute of our maker. Now in Greek, the word holy or holiness is hagios uh, or hagiosmos. Uh, in the New Testament, the word appears 233 times in just 27 books. In the Old Testament, the word appears 628 times in just 39 books. And that's just those two words. That's not variants. That's not other words that are related to holiness. That's just those words. It's amazing. Such a common word, such a common theme. Why? Why is holiness such a common thing? Why is it one of the key attributes that's focused on that we have to know uh, about, uh, about God? What is this holiness? We sing about it all the time, don't we? We sing about God being holy. We sing about it, uh, about him not just being holy, but we sometimes, even in our songs, speak of him as scripture speaks of him. Thrice holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
So what does it mean? I mean, it's printed on all kinds of things. It's printed on our Bibles. It's in our hymns. It's everywhere. But what does holiness mean? Well, let's pray together, and then we'll define holiness, and we'll jump into our text for today. So, Father, we ask for your help. Father, we need your help to read your word, to understand it. It is powerful and deep and complex. And, Father, we know that it's so simple that... that Children can read it and understand it, but it's also deep. It's full of great meaning and intention and communication. And Father, sometimes we we fail to understand some of the concepts because they are in many ways beyond our comprehension. But Father, we pray that you would give us great understanding and great discernment and great wisdom as we approach your word that we may know you and love you and worship you in spirit and in truth. That is our prayer. We do love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is holiness? Holiness has two facets that I want to focus on this morning. It's certainly a lot more complex than I'm going to make it seem, but it is, I think, can be boiled down to two things that are exceedingly important when we try to understand the concept. So what is holiness? Number one, holiness... The word holy means sacred. When something or someone is holy, they are set apart, they are special, they are distinct, they are other, they are devoted, consecrated, and dedicated. They are so very sacred and distinct from everything else and everyone else um, that it is. there's this, this rift, this, this distance between that which is holy and that which is normal, that which is holy and that which is sometimes even unholy. It's distinction. It's otherness. Our God is distinct. He is sacred. He is other from everything else in the universe, both that which is seen and that which is unseen. He's not like anyone or anything else. We've been talking about this in our Sunday and Wednesday night study on the Trinity, talking about how all of our, our ideas to try to explain the nature and being of our God, they fall short because there is nothing and no one in the universe like our God. He is the only totally, completely, truly unique thing in the universe. And the prophets of old often asked rhetorically, who is like our God? And the obvious answer is no one. Psalm 113 that we heard this morning, uh, read by Lisa. uh, Psalm 113 verse 5 says this, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? Jeremiah 10 verse 6 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Exodus 15 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. 1 Samuel 2 2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. 1 Chronicles 17 verse 20 says, There is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Exodus 8 10 says, And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that uh, you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Deuteronomy 3.24, O Lord God, 
You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? 2 Samuel 7.22 Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you. According to all we have heard with our ears. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun. Uh, and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Are you seeing a theme? <laughs> and that's just a few of them. I found like 45 passages that are almost the exact same wording of, You alone are God. There's none like you, God. 45! And that's just that specific wording. That doesn't include all the others. Are you seeing how common this theme of holiness and distinction is in Scripture? There is no one and nothing like God. Not in the earth, not on the earth, not above the earth. Nothing. Not in all the universe that compares to God, he is altogether and absolutely unique, having no equivalency whatsoever. That's awesome. And it has to be true. It has to be true of our God. If our God was like anyone or anything else, then he wouldn't truly be God. He must be distinct and separate and different this is one of the things that I, I think that the Muslims have a right understanding of holiness, but they worship the wrong God. They have a right understanding of, of not comparing anything to Allah. In fact, they have a whole separate category of sin that is unforgivable related to comparing Allah to someone or something. It's called shirk. You can't associate anything with Allah because he is considered holy. I think that's a good attitude to have. They just have it towards the wrong God. How true it is that our God is so distinct and other that there is none to compare him to. Those passages, it's, it's funny, several of those passages came from the same chapter in the same section of Isaiah. Why? Because the false gods are being put on trial by the one true God in that section. And over and over again, God says, these can't compare to me. They're not like me because they're not God. They are not gods. They are false. There's none like me. But holiness doesn't stop there. Holiness also means, and that we're going to look at this morning, purity. Holy means pure. When we speak of God being Holy. We don't just mean that he's set apart, we mean that he's pure, that he's entirely righteous and upright, that he's complete, completely free of all sin and impurity. He is clean, he is innocent, he is sincere. This is what 
Purity, and this is why there's so many purity rituals and cleanliness rituals in the Old Testament surrounding uh, the, the worship of the one true God and why it's such a big deal. Do you ever wonder that? Like as you're reading through the Old Testament, there's an awful lot of cleanliness. There's an awful lot of people worried about being clean when they come to worship, right? Like you got to go through purification ritual, got to wash, you got to scrub, you got to pray, you got to make sacrifices, you got to do all these different things. Because you're supposed to be clean when you approach God in worship. And I always thought that was so weird as a kid, especially. You know, kids are notorious for not liking bath time. So I'm looking at this like, man, it must have stank to be somebody worshiping God back then, right? I have to go always to, to take a bath before you go to worship. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for the ritual See, so much of our ritual, so much of our tradition, we, we lose the meaning of. We start participating in it as rote ritual, as, as something we just do because it needs to be done, rather than understanding that ritual and tradition are meant to communicate truths. They're meant to communicate meaning to us. And there's meaning in those rituals of cleanliness and purity. There's meaning in these things because we are approaching a God who is so other and so clean, so holy, that our uncleanliness when we approach him can make us dead. It can make us dead. It's one of the things that also strikes me in the Old Testament is that when a holy God is encountered by unholy people, and it's not done in the way that he prescribes, bad things happen. Bad things happen. The story comes to mind of Uzzah and the transportation of the ark. If you remember the story, the ark of the covenant is being transported back to the city, and the people had not done their due diligence in studying what the scripture said about how the ark was to be transported. How was the ark to be transported? You remember? It's supposed to be carried by priests using poles. How was it being carried? On a cart by animals. You want to talk about disrespect. Disrespect. And then, just as God knew it would happen, and why he declares the certain way it's supposed to be transported, guess what? The cart hits a rock or something, and starts to tip. And the ark is in danger of falling to the ground. And Uzzah, thinking he's doing something good, reaches out and touches the ark to steady it. And he drops dead instantaneously. He drops dead instantaneously. And I always thought that was weird, didn't you? Like, he's trying to do a good thing and God strikes him dead. No, he's not! He's not trying to do a good thing. If they were trying to do a good thing, they would have obeyed God from the beginning in exactly how he said to transport the ark. He would have never touched it to begin with. No, he's not doing a good thing. He's doing a bad thing. He's disobeying God. Disobeying God with right motivations is still disobeying God still disobeying God. And that's what happens. 
the unholy and the unclean comes in contact with a vessel that is supposed to represent physically the presence of God made manifest among the people. And when that unholiness, that uncleanliness touches the place that represents the presence of God. We're not even talking about touching God. We're talking, talking about touching a vessel that was a symbol of God's presence. He falls dead as a result. And he's not the only one affected by God's holiness. Think about the other instances of how man encounters God and how God's holiness affects him. Think about Moses. You remember the story of Moses? Moses had gone up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he was speaking with God. And God was giving him the law, the stone tablets. And when he begins to descend the mountain, when Moses starts coming down from the mountain, something's different about him. Something is radically altered in Moses' physical body. The Bible describes him as being radiant, that his face was radiant, so much so that the people were afraid. The people were afraid. Think about this. Here's the man who you've been following out in the desert. You've seen him do all kinds of crazy stuff. And suddenly he's coming back down the mountain. It's like, is that Moses? Is he glowing? That's kind of weird. I'm kind of... I'm going to stand over here. You can just stay over there. It's kind of a scary moment. Somebody started glowing randomly. I'd be pretty afraid of them too. Of course, I'd have a little bit different concern. I wouldn't wonder so much about their holiness. I'd probably wonder about their radioactivity. Seen one too many, uh, seen one too many uh, uh, Saturday morning cartoons and read one too many comic books where something poisonous and radioactive bites somebody and they start crawling up walls and shooting webs out their hands. Why was he radiant? Why was his presence glowing? Because he had been in the presence of a holy God. And the holy God had changed him and altered him in some way. It had, effect, it had affected Moses. Not just spiritually, but physically as well. And I think this is such a profound and cool truth that God's presence, God's being, God's nature... His holiness affects places and people and objects. He makes holy that which is not holy. Isn't that fascinating? It's one of the things I, th I think is really cool about studying the tabernacle in the Old Testament. This tent of meeting, this place of meeting. What's inherently holy about what the tent is made out of? Nothing. What's inherently holy about the objects of that are used in the worship and the sacrificial rituals? Nothing. What's inherently holy about the sacrifices themselves or about the, the, the rituals and the, the various um, uh, utensils and, and all these different things that, that take part in the ritual surrounding the tabernacle? Nothing. Nothing makes these inherently holy. In fact, these are pretty common objects. I mean, you think about gold. Gold was pretty, pretty common. 
in that region of the world. Gold wasn't really the thing that was the most of most valuable. Now for us, gold seems pretty valuable. But that wasn't the most valuable, the most expensive of metals during certain points in history. And it certainly isn't inherently holy. I mean, somebody had to even go and purify that gold, didn't they? They had to go and take it out of the ground and melt it down and skim off the impurities. They had to shape that metal. There's nothing special about it in and of itself, yet all of these things are talked about as holy at some point. The utensils, the objects, the, even the tent of meaning is declared a holy place. And not just holy, but there's an innermost and most sacred, most holy, holy of holies within. Why? It's not the inherent value of these things. It's because God shows up and makes them holy. His presence, His being, His nature, His holiness permeates that place. And those people and those objects, He makes them special and distinct and clean. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verse 13 through 16 today. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He starts out this section, therefore, referring back to everything he's already said. Therefore, because of all that I've said, prepare your minds for action. Peter's writing to the early church And he says, just as Jesus, God incarnate, is holy, you too should be holy. How? How can we possibly be holy? It's a question that always comes to my mind in moments like that in Scripture. How am I supposed to be holy? I'm incapable of holiness. I can't even get it right for a day. With man, it's impossible. But when God works, when God moves, when he does things in this world, he makes the impossible reality. Our God makes the impossible reality. Practically speaking, God makes us holy. His mere presence is transformative and life-altering. You can see it in story after story where Jesus is moving among the people and seeing how different he is. They ask, who is this man? He's the God man and his holiness makes us holy. And people, some people recognize this right off the bat. I love the story of the woman who was bleeding for years. She comes and she, she has in her mind, I don't even need to touch him. Just something that's touched him or is touching him because he's that holy. He's that special. He's that different. He's that righteous. I just need to touch the 
tip of his cloak. If I can just get a tiny bit of that, I believe that he'll heal me. That's some powerful belief in holiness and the transformative power of God. God makes man holy. So how do we fit into this as Christians? What do we do? How do we prepare the way for the Lord in our own lives, our own minds, our own hearts, and our own souls? Peter says something interesting. And it's not translated very well in many Bibles because we don't really have a cultural equivalent nowadays in the West of what Peter says to do. Peter literally says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, it's not translated that way in your Bibles because, again, we don't really have a cultural equivalent of that. When's the last time you girded up anything? Okay? Most of us don't even know what does that mean? What does it mean to gird up? We don't have anything like that. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what does that mean? What does it mean to to gird up? There there was this ancient oriental custom where a person who was preparing for running or fast walking or various laborious tasks and all manner of strenuous activities, they would gather up their long robes and they would pull them up between their legs, after which they would tie them around their waist and tie them off really good so that then they can run or move fast or work hard. Girding up your loins was a sign that there was work to be done. You had to do something really difficult. And so Peter uses that image, but he doesn't do it physically of a physical girding up with clothing. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. So what does that mean? It means prepare your minds for hard work. To use our cultural equivalent, put your big boy pants on and get ready to deal with it. (laughs) Peter says, whatever you're about to experience spiritually, it's going to require hard work, attention, effort, sacrifice. Peter Peter alters the the phrase, though, and he says, gird up the loins of your mind for a reason, that this has to take place in our minds. It's not something that takes place just physically. It's not a physical preparation. We have to prepare our minds, our thoughts, our understanding. How do we do that with our thoughts, though? How do we gird up the loins of our mind? He gives us a formula for this. He says, first, you have to be sober-minded. You have to be sober-minded. Now, don't misunderstand this text. This is not a declaration of the evils of alcohol as the feminists of the women's Christian temperance movement asserted. That is a severe uh, exegetical fallacy. This is not a passage at all about alcohol. Being sober-minded means being self-controlled. That you are in control of your thoughts. Now, certainly, if you're drunk, you can't be in control of your thoughts. Now, can you? If you're high, you can't be in control of your thoughts. Now, can you? But there's also other ways that we're not in control of our minds. When we don't take captive every thought and make it a slave to Christ, we're not being sober-minded. We're not being sober-minded. Every thought must be held captive. And it's not just these substances that I listed. It's not just the 
letting go of, of uh, control of our thoughts. It's also anything that, that clouds our minds, anything that controls our minds, anything that inhibits us in our understanding. It's not just a physical temptation that we're dealing with that keeps us from being sober-minded. It's any behavior, any idea, any philosophy, even any emotion that clouds our understanding and prevents us from being sober-minded. Our emotions can go from being just that, emotions, to being sinful emotions, like that. Don't let your emotions have you. You control your emotions. Be sober-minded. Don't let your feelings have you. I can't tell you how many families and how many businesses and even how many churches are destroyed because people don't know how to control their emotions. They let feelings take over their minds and poison the wellspring of their soul, of their being. They don't take captive the emotions and make them obedient to the word of God. We let emotions cloud our judgment and our understanding and and alter our theology and what we believe from the Bible. I've seen churches destroyed in this way. Oh, well, we we can't teach that homosexuality is a sin. Don't you see that there's a whole bunch of people that that would alienate? And I would feel bad. I'm sorry. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to make you feel happy. I'm here to tell you the truth. And that will give you something better. Joy. Joy. You think joy can be found in homosexual behavior? It can't be found there. Doing anything outside of God's prescriptive pattern of behavior does not give us joy. It doesn't give us joy. God doesn't give his law to hinder and prohibit joys. God doesn't give his law to hold us back from enjoying the things in life. He gives his law to say, I've given you all that is good. Do what I tell you within these parameters and enjoy that freedom. But if you go beyond those, it's not going to be fun. I promise you, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. Don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with emotion inherently. Emotion is natural and a gift from God. In fact, I would argue that that's actually one of the attributes that God bestows upon us of his own nature, that he has emotions, but he's not controlled by them. He has emotions, but he's not controlled by them. God experiences joy. God experiences happiness. God also experiences sadness. He also experiences being um, uh, very... Um, sad that he, he made humanity at several points in scripture. It speaks that, that he was distraught, that he was sad, that he was down about this. That's emotion. But God isn't controlled by these things. He doesn't get angry with humanity and sad that he created us and then just, ah, oh, we've got to kill them all. And then he regrets it later. Like, oh, I made a terrible mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I was angry and I lashed out irrationally. That's not how God operates. God always operates perfectly. The way that he experiences emotions is very different than the way we do. We let him control our behavior and our thoughts and our responses so very often. We should not do that. 
We should enjoy our emotions, experience them, and use them as God intends. Because our emotions can prod us to good works. For example, you ever seen one of those commercials? You know the ones I'm, I'm talking about where it's the little kid. The little kid who's malnourished. And there's flies on his belly and on his face and crawling across him. And you wonder, why isn't just somebody just smack the flies away? And there's great sadness when you see those types of commercials. And for good reason. That is a God-given thing that should prompt us to want to destroy that type of poverty that causes starvation. That should want us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. There are wonderful and healthy responses, but as all things, we can abuse the emotions that God has given us, just as a person can abuse prescription drugs or sex or any other gift from God. Now, we should not let anything cloud our judgment and hold us hostage. We should be self-controlled. And Peter also says that in preparation for the work of God making us holy, we should set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says our hope should rest firmly on God's work and God's ability to do exactly what he says he will do. We should look forward to the day that we will see him and fully see what he's done with great trust and absolute assurance. It's so funny because we like to, we like to know how all the pieces fit together and how things work. We like to tinker, don't we? We like to know all the inner workings of stuff. As a kid, I loved doing this. My dad had some computer parts at one point that I just started tearing to pieces. I don't know if I was supposed to or not. But I started tearing these components apart, looking at the insides of them. Because I wanted to know, how does this work? And we want to know how that works with holiness. We want to know, how does God make me holy? How in the world does he do that? That's something we can't tinker with. It's something beyond our scope, beyond our realm. But this is where trust comes in. This is where faith comes in. That we need to trust that God is capable of doing that, of making holy that which is unholy. And Peter continues, he says, don't be conformed to the passions you had in your ignorance. Don't give in to the lusts and cravings and desires and longings that you had when you were not a follower of Christ. You're not that person anymore. And those things don't hold you captive anymore. You are not a slave to sin any longer. You have been put to death in your sin and raised to life in Christ. The old sinful you has passed away and a new one has come to be. That doesn't mean you're perfect right now, but it means you are not held captive by the things that once held you captive. You're not a victim of those things anymore. Our culture loves victimhood. We love to be victims because it absolves us of responsibility. It absolves us of responsibility. We love being victims. Everybody wants to be a victim of somebody nowadays. Because there's good money in it. I don't have to work. All i got to do is be a victim of some, some company being negligent and I can get a nice payday. It absolves us of responsibility. In that case, responsibility to work and provide for ourselves. But we also like being spiritual victims in many ways. Oh, well, this, this sinful behavior just got me down and I just, I can't shake it. You're not a victim anymore. You're not a victim. 
You are a victor. You are victorious in Christ. Scripture is clear on this point. You are more than a conqueror because of what he has done. Because of his holiness. Because of his obedience. We are now capable of obeying and following. Again, it doesn't mean we're perfect and that we're not going to mess up. But it means as Christians, we're growing. We're moving forward. We're maturing. We are becoming more holy and more obedient. So often as human beings, we want to make holiness practically in our lives so much more complicated than it has to be. When this is what it boils down to, what does holiness mean in our lives as Christians? It means obedience. It means obedience. It means following Christ. It means doing rightly what God expects of us. And we want to make it so much more complicated because then it absolves us in some way. Like, I don't understand what it means to be holy. It's so mystical and mysterious. It's so wrapped in tradition and garbed in liturgy that I don't know what to make of it. It means obedience. It means following. It means obeying. It's not that mysterious. I think Scottish theologian John Brown said it best. He said, holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. Thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. I love John Brown. Beautiful statement. Thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. It's so simple to say, isn't it? It's difficult to do if we're honest in our lives. In fact, if we were on our own to do it, it would be impossible. It would be impossible. I can't even think on, on my own the way that God thinks, let alone will what he wills, or even more difficult, work that will. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, this is God speaking, nor, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We cannot be holy on our own. We need another to accomplish it for us and to empower us to obedience, to live holy lives. We need Jesus. Jesus, the perfect, pure, righteous, holy God-man who goes to the cross and dies to make us holy and righteous in the sight of the Father. We're going to have a time of invitation this morning. And my friends, today, you need holiness. I need holiness. We all need holiness. And it begins, continues, and will be accomplished with Jesus. It begins, continues, and will be accomplished with Jesus. Today, if you need to receive God's gift of holiness that power to obey and to follow. 
if you need to respond to his merciful work, then we're going to have a time for you to do so. Let God make you holy and continue to make you holy. Let his work do what he intends. Why don't you do that this morning as we stand and as we sing together. Thanks for joining us for the message today. If you would like more information about this and other teachings, or you'd just like to know more about Jesus, visit our website at wccjb.org or come visit us at 1405 Persimmon Ridge Road in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Check our website and Facebook page for service times. We hope you join us again and that we'll see you soon.